Hello and welcome to Euphoria Podcast. This is Season 8, Episode 9. Uh, we are actually recording this on the same day that we record the Reckless episode, but this is a special episode. We're bridging the gap in break week. More LEC-focused content will be coming your way next week to preview the playoffs, but this week we're going to be sitting down with Jeevan Sidhu, who is... Um, one of the guys on the Summoners Rift team, he's actually the lead designer for the for the Summoners for lead game designer for the Summoners Rift team. He has a complex title, but the part that anyone who's watching this is going to care about is that he has taken over some of Mark Getter's responsibilities. First and foremost, the most important part is he's the guy who tweets the patch stuff now. So if you're wondering where all the flame comes from and all the LS immediate hot takes come from. This is the man's Twitter that you need to follow. And this is the man who is, who's communicating this stuff, obviously a much greater team behind all these decisions as always, but he is at least in that part, kind of the new Mark getter in that regard, in that regard. Um, so we're going to get him on the show. We're going to talk to him. We're going to ask questions from pro players. We're going to figure out what he thinks of Nocturne mid, um, brain dead champion. I think we can both agree. That he is. Just some light lip videos flame to you start because I flame Cager all the time. Someone can flame me back. Um, but yeah, let's get into it. Let's get started. Euphoria, special episode, break week. Woo! And it is my great pleasure to welcome to the Euphoria podcast, Jeevan Sidhu. Um, welcome, Jeevan. It's bright and early in Los Angeles. How's life? How's it going in the kind of post but not quite post-pandemic world? Yeah, it's great. People are coming out of their caves, and uh, we're back. We're back at the office recently. It's nice to see people. Things are are looking really good lately, actually, for the most part. A few hiccups, but for the most know. part, for the, the most, for the most, it's part. getting better yeah. in the world, especially. <laughs> yeah, we went we went back a little bit. We started putting on masks again, and there's there's, there's fear of stuff, but for the most part, people are really positive. Yeah, and it, a good, I mean, yeah. good that you guys get to be back in the office and working. We were um, speaking last week or earlier today, if you're keeping up with the canon, with Reckless about the, the struggles of quarantine. And it's, it's everyone is handling it and dealing with it differently. But uh, we obviously know a lot about you. We, we prep for this. We're, we're ready for this. But I, I want to make sure that our audience knows who you are, too. So do you mind explaining quickly who you are, kind of what your background is, what you've worked on, mm-hmm. and, and where you are now and what you're where your responsibilities lie, who, what, what is your domain? What is your expertise these days? Yeah. So, um, I, uh, well, I, you might know me as Jag, but I was a champion designer for a while. So I worked on Camille, Kaisa, Atrox, Seraphine, now Akshan. And I moved to the Summoner's Rift team this year as the lead game designer. And that's, that's often called the balance team. Uh, they change champions, runes, items, they make sure that the pro meta is, you know, doesn't stay stale. They ship preseason. Um, we're not the, say, the compet team, for instance, which is the team that manages the ladder system, you know, metagame systems, MMR, solo queue. We mostly do the in-game experience. Excellent. Now, um, we obviously have a ton of questions um, prepared for you from a pro perspective. But I, I want to know which of these, these because you've worked on a number of champions. I, are you allowed to have favorites? Is there one that's like <laughs> your, and then we'll st- we're going to softball. The, the pros ask much harder questions than I do. So we'll start with, start with this one. Is there, yeah. is there, do you have a baby? Is there one champion that you're like, oh, this, cha- this, is, my, this is my masterpiece? I, I can't, I really can't say that because it'll, it'll appear like uh, there's some impropriety. Let's say that... Um, I'll tell you this at least. I'll give you a hint. All I've done is nerf my favorite champion since I got on this team. Oh no! <laughs> it's uh, Aww. yeah, yeah. Oh, the only you know I, I didn't 
are have these plans of like you know I'll come into this job and then just give sixty percent win rate to all my champs. No, no, all I've done. <laughs> no, is that's, that's, that's rough. Wow, it's it's a yeah. toss up. Is it Seraphine or is it Kaisa? It's so hard to know. Does the Hail of Blades nerf count <laughs> as a Kaisa nerf? A little bit, yeah. It's Kaisa so, especially. It's, it's, it can't. I don't think it's Camille. Uh, it's, oh, Could be Kaisa. Divine. All right. Well, we'll let the detectives decide. We, we don't, don't don't give us a definitive answer. The detectives can figure it out at home. I'm sure a witch champion has been exclusively nerfed. I'll say every champion has their own little element that makes them really special in my heart. Um, like, for instance, Seraphine was was in, in many ways designed for a set of players that I think we don't design enough for. And that, like, was really gratifying to do. Yeah. People who really, really love abusing healing and shielding. Those 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 people. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there's an actually, yeah. I'm sure there's a really valid demographic there. But from our perspective, as people who watch pro, we're like... Those people don't need any more champions, Jeevan. Those, they're they're yeah. fine. They had one, no more, no more. You know the, the the Moonstone build is definitely the pro build, but um, but most people on live seem to get like by the injuries a whole lot on Seraphine. So it's uh, that's it's, uh, there's a schism in the player audience there, I suppose. That that is more respectable to me. I'll, I'll take Leandry <laughs> Seraphine. Just just no more Moonstone Seraphine. No more Moonstone Midland Seraphine, especially. That's that's I all I, I want. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, we have a wonderful group, a uh, bunch of questions today. Let's start with our first question from Freddie One Two Two, head coach of Rogue. Let's see what he has for us. Hey, it's Freddie, head coach of Rogue. My question is, how much do you keep up with the esports scene? And how much does it affect balance decisions in game? Yeah, pretty straightforward. Uh, what are you an avid esports viewer? Is it something you assign to someone on your team? Even what's the what's the connection between esports and the uh, the balance team? Yeah. So um, thanks for that question, Freddie. Um, we keep up with it all the time on our team. Most of our team is uh, a set of people who are like really engaged with the game. And even if they weren't actually working on this team would probably be spending a lot of time on their weekends watching esports. Um, it, it heavily informs our balance decisions because we're kind of constantly watching the evolution of the pro meta and almost anything we ship, we like very carefully consider the effects of it in pro. Like as an example, Hullbreaker uh, was sort of a rework to Sanguine Blade and it meant to promote split pushing strategies. But a lot of the, powered exhibits is very pro focused it's like how do you take a tower into a tank that is dedicated to defending this tower and you're a squishy that's like a very common pro problem that happens you know here and there this particular meta it's not the the core problem for most top laners to solve but we'll watch games from many different regions talk about what strategies they employed um i've been like demanding to see malzahar for like months and then he finally got pulled out in LPL recently. And I was like, yes, finally, you know, we, we're, we're, we're there. We're, we're moving the meta forward. <laughs> um, he's so good into this meta with all these assassins. Um, and then every, um, our biweekly meeting, which is like state of the game, is when we evaluate every champion in the game. So we'll look at the pro presence of like all champions and we'll really sharply focus on the ones that are like 80% plus and evaluate if we feel like they're overpowered or if they're, you know, blotting out other diversity in terms of champion picks. And then at, you know, at, at a non-work level, like we love esports as spectators. We love the game. We're excited to watch pros optimize it. We're looking for pocket picks, secret strategies. We're just fan fans a lot of the time. And uh, I've been an NA fan for a decade. 
And I've been disappointed for a decade, but I'm still pulling for them, you know? Uh, I appreciate that you stuck to your guns there. That was an opportunity for you to sell out to the to the audience here. I've been an NA fan a decade. No. They've done me wrong. So I'm I'm changing sides here in this moment. Uh, but I was hyped about the LPL there. <laughs> what, what uh, yeah, I mean, well, it, the LPL is awesome, right? Yeah. We, we definitely pay attention despite them being out of, you know, our time zone or whatever. And they do so, such cool things there. So it's, it's hard not to pay attention. Yeah. Definitely. Just going back to your point there about um, Freddy's question in general. You said that you're mainly looking at the champs, uh, the 80% plus champs. Are you just look, you're looking at pick rate, I presume, then? The champions with the highest priority? Um, our presence metric is pick ban. And we don't tend to differentiate them too much. In that, like, we'll say, oh, were you, were you pick or banned 80 plus percent of the time? We do know there's a difference. It's like... Often, champ for instance, often champions that are rarely picked but like frequently banned are like red side counter picks. It's like okay, blue side pick something here. They know the only way to deal with it is this, and they banned it. But otherwise, no one would care about playing it. Like, what's an example of this? Um, when Nar was pro dominant, this was how Aurelia functioned, right? She was like, okay, you pick her into Nar, and so the team would try to ban her. Otherwise, you wouldn't pick Aurelia a few months ago. So um, we care about pick ban. We, we we kind of tend to more just care about their broad presence. When it comes to like making a decision on on kind of how you balance champions from a pro lens, and I know that the the process is a bit more complicated because obviously you have a lot of different levels to play. Um, you said you look at like so you look at the presence rate, maybe some win rate, some some other metrics in there too. But how do you decide actually like what what to take down um, to to affect pro play? Like wh- how do you decide which parts of the kits to nerf? Because a lot of the times from from an outside perspective, when we see patch notes, mm-hmm. I think it's a lot of seemingly small changes things like two armor here or there 20 hp here or there on the level one sometimes it's you know much bigger changes in the case of the most recent aurelia patch that shift but like how do you decide which parts to focus on once you've identified that a champion maybe is is too powerful in pro play that's a that's a cool question so i think we have to balance for all spheres of the game simultaneously, right? So if something is particularly pro-dominant um, and is like appearing everywhere in solo queue, it's like pretty easy because we can target close to anything and be like, ah, that's just generically a powerful champion and we can adjust it. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's like a terrible solo queue champion, but like an amazing pro champion, then we try to target things that are specifically pro-bound. So um so as an example, like Syndra, when she was just like hyper dominant as a first pick, but also like won like 40% of her solo queue games. So we were like, okay, what's something that pros tend to leverage much better than other players? And that could be something we could address that would still leave her like a meaningfully powerful champion, but not as dominant. And so I think the last time we did that, it was like addressing early wave pressure or sorry, like early lane pressure because just pros are just much better at finding small edges in lane and then snowballing that. Mm. Um, on the other end, the like things that are like the other issue that I guess comes up a lot is that often pro-dominant champions tend to be flex picks. And we'll probably talk about flex picks eventually, but um, when flex picks tend to make it so you don't have a champ select answer because they'll just move it to another lane or hide it in the jungle, we will tend to address how powerful they are when they're flexed. So this is like recently Viego, right? Viego's like, put him top, put him mid, put him jungle, put him anywhere. Like, you won't have any way of actually being able to counterpick this champion. So we 
one of the reasons we addressed his lane sustain was like to kind of reduce like flexibility. <laughs> I like the language. I like the word addressed. It's like non-existent on the <laughs> like it has been taken yeah. down so much. <laughs> the word addressed. Most 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 changes I agree addressed, but like over the last two patches, that has been that has been gutted. In respect, I that champion was, yeah, it was nuts. miserable to play against. Yeah. So much sustain. And just speaking of this uh, pro play topic, so we've talked about the the end of the spectrum where it comes to like the champions are OP. We want to turn them down. You know, we want to tune them down. Do you also consider the opposite end where there's champions which, I mean, from an ex-pro player's perspective, I see champions which will never really find its way into pro play. You know, things like, I don't know, Warwick, Ilawi, Garen. Things we'll never really see in pro play. Is a perfect world for you where anything is viable in pro play itself? Are you actually looking at the champions that aren't ever picked? And you're like, hmm, is there a way that we can make them viable in pro itself? Or is that something that you tend to just, you know, let the pros handle that? If they think it's OP, they think it's OP, we're going to keep focusing on the... Um, on the casual player base side, because I can see why a champion being really high priority in, in pro play should be toned down a bit, because obviously they think it's very strong. But is there an opposite end to the spectrum which you consider as well? Yeah, I. so the examples you use like Warwick, Alawi, Garen, we don't have any expectation of buffing them to a level that would be pro viable. It's like we, we could, I'm sure we could give Master Yi enough clear speed to appear in a pro game but he would win like literally every solo queue game and so it's kind of hard for us to feel like we could push those champions forward um but we'll often particularly when we feel like the the players are around the esports scene are like hey this metagame is stale we'll we'll try to buff champions that we think are like reasonably pro like you know on the fringe right it, mm -hmm. what would be a good example right now it'd be like we could we could buff nar right now it wouldn't take much and he'd probably be back in pro and that would be a good way to get uh, interest in like who's picking what top lane. Um, mm. So I think the to answer the one of the very first questions though, Akadril, you were like, is the ideal pro game like every champion's viable? I think so. I think higher champion diversity tends to directly correlate to more exciting pro games. I don't think it's realistic for like a lot of champions. Turns out certain things are good, but much better in pro versus solo queue. That's always, I feel like, because Alawi, yeah. you know, when people don't read champion kits and walk into you 2v1 at level six in solo queue, you're having a great time. In a pro game, you sit there, you get to three items. And everyone plays ranged. Everyone plays ranged. No one ever goes near you. They push no, their CC. I think it's a fair point where there's a lot of champions on the fringe of pro right now. Like you can take Nara's example, maybe even we'll just say Orin as well, who's being picked a tiny bit, but that, that little extra push might actually put him into pro play, whereas a lot of champions need a bigger push, right? Because when it comes down to kits, the way the game's played in the current meta in pro play, it's very hard to just push a champion in there without actually breaking him in the casual side of the game. Definitely. Yeah, and like, I think... Um, it, it's it's sad to me when we see kind of fringe picks that like like every few months I'll see a, like a top laner like plus bust out Yorick in a pro game and I'm like yes maybe this time he'll work and then he like fails miserably and we don't see Yorick for another year because everyone's like no this there's no way this will work um I think who played Rengar last week was it Blipo it was, it was Blipo in the jungle yeah, yeah. he played uh, yeah, Smite was... Exhaust Rengar. I thought that was so sweet. I was like, this is awesome. I'd love to see more. I thought it was going to go top initially, but I, I, it's like, it, those are so exciting when we see those fringe champions make it to pro, uh, especially without our push. Like, that's even cooler, right? It's like a natural evolution of the meta and all that. Yeah, I think that's... Oh, I have follow, we have so many questions and I want to make sure the pro players, because they, they took the time to ask questions, get them in. But we can, yeah. we can for sure, I'm sure, find an opportunity to sneak up more follow-ups here. I want to go to the next question from XL Cries, top laner for XL. Uh, let's see what he had to say. Hi, my name is Chris. I play for Excel, and my question is: uh, 
when you do the patch notes, do you sit down like a week before as a team and uh, think about what champion wants to be nerfed or do you like do it individually and come with ideas or what's what's the plan there? Yeah, so just uh, can you explain the patch process, I guess, to us? Is it is it individuals hunting for OP champions? Is it is it data informed? What is what is the actual process of making a patch and shipping a patch? It's it's definitely both, actually. Uh, I, I can give the structure of, of of the two weeks of a patch, right? So the first day is a Wednesday, and we'll get in a room and we'll plan up the next two weeks. And at the beginning of these two weeks, we will focus on larger projects that we know are not trivial to do in like a day or two. So. The most recent example was Dr. Mundo. We changed a fair amount of mechanics on him to make him not tragic in the jungle. Like he punts small monsters. We changes his coefficient for damage. That takes a few days to validate that it works and it isn't going to break anything. Um, and we have, you know, the next roughly week and a half to work on those changes. Um, a week after that, so the next Wednesday, is around the time that the last patch we finished will reach live servers. Mm. And so... We play the game, we watch how people respond to changes, we look for surprises, we monitor our data pretty closely for the next two days to see if something spiked up, right? It's like, oh, wow, the that really, that, like, let's say last patch, like, Rel got a pretty big buff. Uh, and so we're, like, paying attention to that. We're like, oh, okay, what was the magnitude of that? Do we need to think about addressing that and that sort of stuff? And then over that weekend, we'll, we'll tend to see more pro games. And so then Monday is our, like, state of the game, which is that, that uh, meeting I referred to earlier, where we evaluate everything in the game. We look at solo queue, we look at pro play matches for the last two weekends, and we will look at what's OP basically and what's really underpowered too, and decide if we should buff or nerf anything. Pretty mindful of pro patches coming. So, you know, the last few weeks we were pretty, pretty focused on 11.15. We're like, hey, this is the playoff patch. Let's make sure that uh, the meta still feels engaging and we're not going to do any crazy big surprises, but also we're not going to make it the same exact patch that they've been playing for the last few weeks and make sure that it's stable was probably the biggest one. It's like, don't leave any obvious crazy OP outliers that will dominate this patch. Mm. And then we have until Wednesday to finalize those changes and then the cycle repeats. So are you slightly more conservative when it comes to playoffs patches specifically where you're like, we don't want to overload um, and like kind of not break the game in a sense, but you know, like give something that might change the whole vibe of the meta. I think we tend to be more conservative and it's like a multi-patch effort really is like what we'll see in the last couple of patches, what we think is particularly risky. And we tend to try to get ahead of that, like a patch or two early. So like, I think Viego is a cool example again, where it's like, we already kind of poked his lane sustain in preparation for like, this guy is fairly meta dominant and we should see what we can do to reduce that. So we dropped the minion sustain from 150%. Didn't do much. Um, but we were planning for that. We we're like, okay, we'll have at least a patch or two to see the effect of this. Mm. And if it doesn't swing as hard as we wanted, then we'll just take another swing because we we just don't want it to be very clear when playoffs start. Everyone's going to first pick this champion regardless. Like we want to do everything we can to avoid that. You're going to have like a buffer. Um, yeah, to have a little time. We, we've tried things in the past. I mean, I wasn't on the team. What was the, What's like a good example of this? That um, that Juggernaut patch, like three or four years yeah, ago, oh, yeah. 2015 <laughs> Worlds. That's the one we reference yeah, all the time. Yeah, th that was like uh, perhaps the opposite philosophy. I guess it was like, okay, let's do something. Let's do something where everyone is getting surprised as this patch goes out, including the the pro meta, and like <laughs> that got that had some issues. It had some cool stuff too. Like I, I 
every top the, lane uh, Darius got a pentakill in one tournament. Yeah, that was yeah, <laughs> that was fun. So I, I, we talk about that too. I mean, I think obviously that was too dis- too much disruption to just drop on the the eve of a patch. On the other hand, it's one of my favorite esports meta shifts where it's like group stages. Darius is dominant, right? Playoffs or sorry, elimination stages start. Darius is dominant. Some guys like wait, Nar exists. And then Darius gets wiped from the meta and he's not in a single like game in the finals. And I'm like, wow, that's really cool. Like mid tournament evolution. That's, that's pretty thrilling. I would love to find a way to capture that again without, you know, doing something quite as disruptive. <laughs> yeah. I think I imagine it would be a hard thing to capture though. Right. Cause I think in order for that kind of adaptation to happen, you need such a long period where one, the game isn't patched, which goes I, against the current cycle. And two, it kind of has to be, to a certain degree for pro players and no offense to the pros I know, but kind of like life or death for them to find an answer to this champion or the pros that I know at least are like, it's the meta. We play the meta. We're chilling. But until something's like so OP and they know that they have to deal with it and it's not going to get nerfed away. I think a lot of pros are like, eh, we'll wait till next patch. We'll mm. pick it up. We'll play it. Maybe we'll ban it. We'll see what happens. But I think that's like, that's such, I, cause I agree. I, in hindsight at the time I was like, what the hell is the balance team doing? Um, but in hindsight, it was it was a really crazy tournament to watch. Now I can't imagine all the teams in groups felt that way who didn't who didn't make it to the next round. But I think from a, from a spectator perspective, it was you know really entertaining. <laughs> yeah, I uh, it's it's interesting the the perspective that pros have on us changing the meta game. I, I think I understand how that could be particularly difficult depending on the time to deal with. Um, I'm sure we'll get into that soon too. Yeah. So uh, thanks again, Cries. Let's jump into our next question, I believe, from Mac. Hello, I'm Mac, head coach of Mad Lions, and I would like to ask what the uh, kind of logic is behind the, at least what I perceive as a recent increase in um, large patch changes on a more regular um, basis, because if I compare to previous years, there would often be patches where they were just smaller kind of game tuning patches. And if I think back across this year, the number of champion reworks, new champions, new items, um, new game features, changes to jungle, changes to the way the turrets, uh, you know, the gold value of turrets, like a lot of larger scale game changes, which would previously only have been kind of mid-season or end of year patches, they've been much more frequent, which makes pro players jobs adapting to that much 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 more difficult so what is the logic behind that yeah i mean so a lot in that question i guess um starting with i guess do you do you agree with the the sentiment that you got that you feel like there have been a lot more um let's say system changes or larger scale changes or or changes that uh, have been affecting pro play yeah um thanks for the question mac um to some extent i agree i I can talk a little bit about how i thought the team has worked this year um so we've had a few patches this year of like pretty major systemic changes. So 11.13 was uh, shrinking the amount of mobility creep in the game and some major top lane focused buffs like Anathema's Chains, Hullbreaker, Sideline Gold. 11.10 was making the jungle more accessible. 11.8 was like support items were updated. 11.6, we nerfed a lot of like powerful sustain outliers. Um, these all... F- were like meaningful changes, but you can, uh, hopefully the theme you can see is like, they were all done as in like priority responses to major problems because Mm. they disrupted the game. 
And that's actually okay with us. Like we, we like the disruption, but they were more about solving specific issues that um, I think most people agreed were like pretty, pretty endemic to the game. I think the Stridebreaker nerf is like an obvious one to me where it's like that totally changed a fair amount of champions viability, but everyone was like, hey, Stridebreaker seems probably untenable at, at this tuning, right? Giving this dash this cooldown. Um, and so like doing the right thing for the game ends up changing it a lot. Um, we also this year, to, to give credit to what he's talking about, we added a new pod on the balance team called Midscope, which was built to address champions that are either in a bad spot because they've been pro play balanced or they just could use modernization. So like two recent examples are Samira and Sona. Um, Samira was very high ban rate and uh, like starting to creep up in terms of pro dominance when we did some changes to make her a little riskier. And um, and Sona's just felt pretty pretty bad for a lot of players since she got nerfed from being a bot lane carry. So th th we've like kind of made it a consistent effort to make sure these champions get attention. And you probably are seeing the effect of that this year. Mm. Um, and then I, the, the kind of other point was like ad about adaptation. And so I actually would love to kind of talk about this more, but I think I'll say at a baseline, we have changed the game every two weeks for 10 years in a row. And so I feel like we issue this challenge to every player, not just pros, that, hey, the game is going to change on you constantly and you're going to have to figure out how to adapt and re-optimize it. And so that's just kind of table stakes from my perspective. I mean, some patches are definitely bigger than others and that might be more disruptive to pro players' plans and how they have to prepare for it. Uh, but on the other hand, I don't think we've had a large table flip this year on the order of, say, like 8-11 which was the marksman changes. Mm -hmm. And uh, and like I, I don't think we'll probably likely do that during a competitive scene anytime soon again. Yeah, because I remember in 2018, I don't want to get my world showing up, so I won't put any words in anyone's mouth, but Doublelift actually made a video on this very similar to the question where he said, the game is changing very, very frequently, which affects pro players a lot. And although he understands it's kind of like a um, a way to keep the game interesting, he feels like maybe the patches should slow down a bit or be honed or more targeted or specific in a sense where if you're a pro player, talking from experience, you're you're playing on a certain patch, you're feeling comfortable, you've, you've pretty much figured it out, but all of a sudden, two weeks later, boom, everything's changed or some things have changed, which even if minor can actually affect drastic things on the patch itself. So is there any room of that being sort of thought about in a sense where it's like maybe some of these patches we want to tone down a little bit so it don't affect pro play as much? We talked about that earlier, just before you go, Jeevan, about that. But is is there room, I guess, to change the cadence? Is there ever consideration about changing the cadence at which you patch the game? That's a bit better. Yeah. Uh, you mean not every two weeks? Yes, changing changing that cadence. Um, yeah. yeah. It's something we've talked about, but it's it's so fundamental to how our players view our game that it would be it would feel like we were changing expectations on them pretty drastically to do that. Mm. There are upsides to it. It's like there, there would be more stability in the game and we'd have like a little more time to, to like specifically craft each patch. And that might be better for the pro meta. I'll say this a lot, a lot of design work is about, is less about finding the, the answer that gets you everything. And it's about trade-offs, right? It's like, well, we have to lose this to get this. And there are voices that are like, we're changing the game too fast. I very recently heard the exact opposite voice from the pro scene, which was like, why have you let Udir and Hecarim be strong this long? You know what I mean? Like yeah. there, there was a rejection of the stability of that meta very vocally. And so 
there's a line here of like the right amount of change is necessary and hitting that amount of change is difficult to be sure that everyone's satisfied with that rate. And so I think maybe to answer the question slightly differently, like we, we are in agreement that it should be the right amount. And if it, you know, if we're changing too rapidly, we, we did end up pulling back when we did that marksman change update, that mid-season update, we did a lot of major system patches in a row and that felt like too much. So we, we haven't really done stuff like that lately, but we're more trying to hit a Goldilocks zone, I guess. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. And I think it is, I think also like the thing that you've, that has been talked a lot about, or uh, excuse me, talked about a lot publicly from, from the balance team, whether it was you or another representative, Jeevan is kind of the, the immortal struggle of balancing for so many different levels of play and trying to appease such a um, kind of diverse audience when it comes to needs, wants, desires in any form, whether that's player skill or desire to see, to see the game change. Um, but on the on the other side, I was curious if, from your perspective, the one of the big changes that we had coming into the year that feels like it's led to maybe more changes throughout the year is is the item change and the item system reworks. And it feels like when I look at this year, um, a lot of the items that are a lot of the reason that I see, if I think about like sustain, is one of the issues that you talked about. I think that was uh, eleven mm. six that you were talking about. Eventually, you know, stridebreaker is that eventually got buffed and came into the fold. Do you feel like this year in particular is so? I don't want to say volatile, but do you feel like there are so many changes and so many adjustments needed because there just was such a massive system change coming into 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 the year? Yeah, I think I I think that's a fair way of putting it. It 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 heavily changed how uh, people understand items, and then items aren't just like a first order consequence, right? It's like with these items, then these champions are strong, and then one of the premises of this item update. Uh, was kind of like you have to read the situation to know the best item. So uh, I guess like a decent example is like if there's a lot of tanks, you uh, as a mage, you might want to get Leandries. But if there's just a lot of squishes, you might get Ludens. And some some champions do pick between the two. Like Victor might pick one or the other based on game state. And so while that is happening, then what the enemy team should pick and buy in response also changes. And so this is like a fairly complex system that can't be resolved in like a few patches and so that's that's just kind of extended throughout like half the year right of us making this item uh, shift and then balancing the system around the optimization of it it just it, it did take a while um and i, I don't know I, I found that pretty interesting yeah interesting and exciting to work on i think it's a little more stable now in that no one's really like, hey, look, Steric's Gage is dominating the game. There doesn't seem to be an, an item or system content that's really doing that now. Maybe Divine Sunderer mm. is the closest one. Um, and I think that's that depends on who you talk to. Yeah. It, but it, it seems like it's not like back on Champions lately. It does feel like it's been a very rapidly... Uh, I will say, and not to, not to um, go too crazy here, but I, I do think that it has just been a very wild year if I think back because it does feel like, obviously one of the, the, the side effects of this change is that there's going to be a lot of players adjusting to a lot of different builds over time. So I think it has been a wild year from a pro play perspective mm -hmm. when we've had the we've had the patches where Ravenous Hydra is crazy. We've had the patches where Stridebreaker is crazy. We've had the patch where only Nocturne and Stridebreaker are crazy. You know, we've had, <laughs> we've had a lot of, we've had the patch where healing was just, you know, and I think that there is... Um, not and as someone who's not behind in the pro scenes, I can't say specifically the changes that make it harder or easier for Mac to do his job or harder or easier for the players to adapt. But I will say, just from an outside perspective, it has been fascinating to see how some of these items have risen or fallen in power. Things like Prowler's Claw, 
bring back the 60 second cooldown. Yeah. That's my one request. I just want to push buttons. Um, 90 second <laughs> cooldown feels bad. No. <laughs> uh, to, to say something that might be slightly more controversial, like I think that level of uh, disruption and uncertainty is kind of like the lifeblood of League of Legends. It's like if, if at any point you stop talking about how you're supposed to build or what champions are good here, like what is there to talk about? What is there to, to really, um, what part of the puzzle is there left to unlock? I mean, I think a, a reason that people enjoy this game is that there's so many possible decisions based on so many different pieces of information that, uh, you know, that feels like a, like a vital part of the engagement, at least from my perspective. And while we're on items, just for one quick second, I wanted to ask you a question um, about items. Uh, and the biggest thing that I see that's kind of missing right now is defensive items for AD carries. Oh, oh here we and, go. No, no, Okay, so I'm a jungler. I'm a jungler, <laughs> yeah, 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 so okay. I'm not defending AD carries here. But just something that I've noticed is I think stopwatch is an incredibly powerful item, especially in pro play, right? Um, mm -hmm. And typically stopwatch only really builds into GA uh, and Zonyas. And, Typically, well, it does. I don't know why it was. <laughs> but the thing we've I've been seeing, especially a lot in pro play, is AD carry is actually building Zonyas. You know, Varus, Ezreal, just building Zonyas because the the item itself gives a lot more value than perhaps a Guardian Angel, like the actual active itself. Is there like a world of exploration or something that actually you guys have actually thought about of another build for stopwatch for AD carries, perhaps? Hmm. So this would be. Can I actually ask you a follow-up to that, Cadre? So what do yeah. you think that they're valuing about the uh, stasis, active stasis effect on Zhonya's that is superior to Garden Angel? So you can, uh, especially in pro play, we'll or, take it Or it could be the stats too, to be fair, because you're talking about ADC champions with decent AP ratios too. But yeah. you know, what, whatever the, the feeling is there. That's the thing, because it feels like right now for defensive items for, for AD carries, you're either going Witsend kind of or Shield Bow, and then you're going towards GAs, right? It's very hard to just go for a tank item, especially unless you're like six items, maybe you can go for something. So the actual idea behind yeah. the stasis effect is you can kind of bait out ultimate abilities. For example, a Nautilus ult, you know, an AD carry getting Nautilus ulted with a GA, he's not going to be able to avoid the Nautilus ult itself, and he's probably still going to die if it's late in the game. And then when he gets revived, sure. you know, he's probably going to die on top of that. So a lot of AD carries, uh, or even just assassins in general, like Volibear, you know, Volibear goes Sunderer nowadays in pro play into Zonia's Hourglass because he goes for dives, he's diving in the backline, you buy time. So for AD carries, or even yeah. for bruisers, it feels like stopwatch is extremely powerful. And then on top of that, for AD carries, Zonia's plus stopwatch at double stasis can also be really effective in teamfights. So right. just in terms of items, I just wanted to throw the idea out there. Has this ever been considered another kind of stopwatch version for AD carries? Because a lot of people are building Zonia's when they don't really need the stats, they just need the, it uh, the item active itself. Yeah, th this is this is a really cool thing to talk about. Um, We've been noticing the the rise of Zanyas in multiple classes too. It's like I, I I think your point is entirely true, and it's like also like Leona is buying Zanyas even uh -huh. in the support role and stuff like that. Uh, the power of Zanyas in the professional game seems to be very high. That's worth thinking about. It's like the the active itself is overwhelming the purchase decisions to the point where uh, if you have a token AP ratio on Varus's, you know, not token. It's, it's just. If you have relatively minor AP ratios, that's <laughs> AP Varus like... players, you are valid. That ratio isn't just there for no reason. You guys matter <laughs> yeah, <it's>, too. <laughs> yeah, I, I honestly just said that's something inaccurate there. Like they're, they're pretty good, to be honest. Um, um, but like I, I think the 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 theoretical answer, at least, would be marksmen should value the AD on the Guardian Angel enough that that would make it like a much more strongly compelling option as an alternative to Zanya's. And so if like a handful of champions who don't 
overwhelmingly prefer AD to AP in, in certain scenarios seem to be picking it up. Like, so I, I'd ask, like, do you, would you, do you think you'd see GA on Callista or Draven? No, but I think versus on- obviously, yeah, having that item on a Callista or Draven is very difficult, but actually the yeah. item itself is just so powerful that it just sucks that they can't in the, in the first place, right? Um, mm. I think when mm. in pro play, especially, we can go back many seasons where it was like, you know, the old stopwatch where you got it like six minutes or something, I can't remember what time it was specifically, but every League single person watch, would get it. Yep. And it would be so useful for yeah. dives, for buying time, for dodging ultimates, like the League of Stopwatch. Right. I feel like the League of Stopwatch is slightly rising back up just because of Zonia's, you know, um, and, and Stopwatch itself. Uh, and I think that Guardian Angel doesn't really provide many defensive stats other than the actual, you know, come back to life. And even in pro play, the come back to life kind of effect never really is valid unless you're against AD assassins, let's say, you know, like a Talon or a Zed where they've actually gone in and they've tried to one-shot you because these champions aren't necessarily played in pro play as much. Um, so right. I just, I'm just, just wanted to question you on like the actual yeah. idea of the stasis itself because I think pro players value it perhaps more than a GA in most scenarios. Mm. Um, and I think that it's just kind of like a missing item for AD carries for defensive items because more and Witsend is like the only magic resist kind of options they have. And then from that, it's just GA against AD assassins. So uh, if you're playing Varus or Ezreal, I think that Zonia's makes a lot of sense for them. Just Draven and Callista, for example, don't right. really have that kind of build path. Yeah, I think um, the fundamental weakness of Marksman tends to be they should be burstable. And we are willing to like somewhat mitigate that weakness by giving them defenses that are like, I will say they are they are not like unconditional defensive windows. So shield bow is a good example. It's like this is a meaningful shield that also won't save you if you have a ton of people who catch you and are pouring damage into you, which isn't a statement that's true of Zanya's. And this is to your point, right? Zanya's is a fairly unconditionally powerful defensive window. I don't think marksmen should get that sort of stuff. Mm. Given the actual strengths of that class, they would just end up sort of warping the meta again if they also could, like, on top of what they provide, which is, like, very consistent scaling uh, damage throughout the game, like, the hyper carry level, very powerful objective status, super good synergy with, like, force multipliers, supports, enchanters. Also, like, that degree of self-peel is, is just too complete of a class package. Um, And so the Zanya's effect being offered to them is something that I don't think we would want to preserve without like a huge trade-off. And, you know, I think in this case, the trade-off does feel major to me. It's like when the Varus gets Zanya's, his damage does go down a lot. And that is probably okay. But we would want, I mean, if it wasn't a major trade-off, we'd probably do something very specific to address that. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks for answering that. That was just a little bit of an off-topic question. But just to bring it to your mind, volley bears, supports, junglers, everyone's building Zanya's right now. And this item is really if, busted. If, if you get Zonya's yeah. nerfed and it hurts EU at Worlds, I'm going to be, <laughs> the fans are going to be furious. It's Hill, like the first item on supports like these days. You're like adding three deaths to Hillisang's death count every game by just taking this item. Out but then he's playing good. You know, if Hillisang's dying, he's playing good. There you go. That's the truth. So yeah, it actually benefits us I, maybe. I think Volibear is like on the acceptable side, but it there is a danger when we try to promote um, innovation in terms of builds and give AP ratios that are meant to promote AP like full AP off builds and they end up being potent enough that you could just incorporate them into the mainline build. So like Zonix is really good in Volibear because his AP ratios are awesome. He doesn't have to be in an AP build to get value out of it. So he could be building a bruiser style and then still like get a ton of value out of Zonix. So, you know, maybe he just has really good AP ratios, I guess I would say. <laughs> yeah, I think the creativity behind the item for the certain champions is great. Yeah, I like it as well. And speaking of yeah. items, um, we have our next question again from Rogue Coach Freddy122 on this exact subject. I'm Freddy, head coach of Rogue. 
my question is, what has been the most difficult item or champion to balance for this season? Yeah, I think self-explanatory on the subject of items. Yeah. It's been, we talked about it already. It's been, there's a ton of items that have been, that have been hit, that have been tuned, that have been adjusted, that have been made even. Um, what is, or yeah. champions, what's been the, what's been the most difficult for the, for the team, Jeevan? I feel like, so if I said champion, I feel like you guys will know what I'm going to say, right? I mean, I don't, I don't want to make you guess, but okay. I, mean, is I would it, just... Is it, is it, the, is it the Kali? Yeah. Okay, okay, <laughs> I okay. So. I was like, I was like, I was trying to, I was like, I was considering yeah. Kais as well, but yeah, I think Akali. Yeah. No, Kais is perfect. Um, Akali, sorry, I'm just kidding. Uh, Akali is, um, we mini reworked her this year. Yeah, and and then she still came back with a vengeance. And like the funniest thing, the funniest thing is like we reworked her, and everyone said, "Okay, this champion is just dead for high MMR. Like, there's she's just not functional. Her lane is is useless." And um, and then she became 100% pick ban again, right? The, the champion's just so intrinsically powerful in the pro game. There's so much playmaking potential, but there, there's also just so much like specialized tools that are good into a pro's pick, and it's. It's it's hard to balance her. I mean, I, I'll just really admit we 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 have difficulty with that one. Mm, yeah, I think the champ has a lot of outplay potential, right? You can do a lot of playmaking, like you said. I think the biggest thing that stands out to me, of course, in the Akali change was like the E2, which was a very frustrating thing for a lot of players, including myself, where it's like, if she has two or three items and she's hit E1 on you and you know she's going to press E2, you're just completely one-shotted. <laughs> and there's not much counterplay in a sense where she's just going to E2 back and then Q in the air. Obviously, that was kind of removed. Um, but that was yeah. what the old Akali used to do, you know? Yeah, so it, I, know, I know people are wondering why we're buffing Akali's E. And I guess the answer is that that feels like the fairest spell she tends to use in her kill combo. Because with the combination of her other spells and mechanics, like you, you can't really dodge like RQ, for instance, right? Like that'll hit you. And she'll probably hit you with most of the rest of the combo if she's in her shroud. But at least the E is like, a non-trivial spell to hit, I think. So mm. that's why we ended up trying to boost power into it. We're like, okay, that that specifically is the the area in which we think pros would be able to to like engage in the counterplay more. But that that's that's maybe you know that's still not really as effective as we'd like. Yeah, I think just from my perspective, from what I've seen from pro player colleagues, is what they would do is R1 and E1 at the same time. So as they use their first yeah. trigger of ultimate, they would EU. So as much as it is probably, I agree in a sense, the hardest thing to land on Akali, there are kind of combos you can use to make sure it lands in a sense. It's so... Yeah, I <laughs> I think you have to commit with the R to do that, which is something. But I, I agree with you. It's like in the right situation, committing with your R is, is probably going to be a play that will get you the kill. Yeah, I think that... that you know what, honestly, I could say more, but I can see what our next question is. And this is, <laughs> this is the perfect example. This is sequenced so perfectly. Shout out to Paul who helped with this. Uh, Phil, why don't you just roll the next question and we can just have a talk. We can have a conversation about everybody's favorite League of Legends champion, post reorg Akali. Hi, I'm Bukko from Fnatic and I was wondering why is it that champions are balanced in a way where they have to remove tools from their kits rather than add them in the future? Like why does Akali have to be dodging towers vision and then has to be removed in the future? Why does Viego have to have minion healing and then it has to be removed later? Why does Akali, a 200 energy, heal on Q and then it has to be removed later? And it turns out that even when you remove these tools, these champs are still really broken. So I'm wondering, 
why do all these champions have so many tools in their kit when kits and when they get released and then they get removed? By the way, like it, it goes back to Camilla, I can even remember. Like this was like four years ago. Camilla was healing on minions with W. It's like everyone was like, oh, after this nerf, the champ is unplayable. And then reality check, it didn't matter, the champ was too broken anyway. So I'd love to know why in God's name the champions get released with so many tools. Um, so, firstly, thank you, Bwipo. There's something special about seeing a human being in their own with no other prompting enrage themselves through <laughs> through memory. Like, it's getting progressively so more just progressively oh, no, more Bwipo. mad as he asks his question. Um, and while the Camille yeah. example is really good, and I know you did work on Camille, I would love to stay on Akali because I think Akali is the one that people will remember the most. I mean, again, you had a you had the dash ulti first, which was a micro stun, which was eventually taken out, or a short stun, mm -hmm. eventually taken out. You had the tower. The Akali has been... I, I, I could be standing to be corrected here, but I think probably the most changed champion in the game in terms Maybe of... Next just, to Rise, but yeah, probably. Yeah, next, next to Rise, who's just been reworked repeatedly, right, in terms of individual mechanics taken in or added, added, added in, excuse me, to the kit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so... Thanks, Blippo. I love the way he talks, man, by the way. It's just, it's <laughs> it's a good style. He, he's a gym. Uh, so the, 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 the most important answer is uh, it's, it's, a, it's a lot easier to cut something and move on uh, when, you've, when you have too much and, and need to pull back than it is to create a brand new design mechanic after release. And then more importantly, and this is the harder part, like create the new art assets, like new animations to convey the new mechanic. Add, adding something is much more difficult um, than it is to cut something. We don't ever want to cut a mechanic when we ship it. We, we ship them with the, the expectation that they'll stay, but it's easier to be all right if we just clearly understand, hey, this isn't going to work. Um, and to get deeper into like why it tends to go this way, uh, a big part of champion design is, I like to call it, it's like making a D&D &D character. You know, you have the same amount of points to allocate. And so then when we add a mechanic that is exceptionally potent, we have to pay for it somehow. It, it takes up points. The way we do it for a lot of modern designs is we tend to remove power from invisible places like base stats, which are very meaningful in terms of power, but are also less clearly understood as a counterbalancing mechanic on the kit. So if you see a tools-rich kit, we tended to take a lot of base stats out of them. That's that's one of our like theoretical balancing points, right? Um, and we've missed on this on like base stats or tools on release in, in both directions. Sometimes we've had too much or too little of both because it's incredibly hard for us to pre precisely predict what will be powerful when everything is balanced. Mm. The, we, we say this a lot, but more games get played on a new champion in the first hour on live than were ever played internally. Because in the first hour, like literally a million games of the new champion get played. And so just, we just get so much more data that we can't have an expectation of accurately modeling player behavior comprehensively internally. Um, and I think like Akali, to, to give a specific, like to talk about Akali, the, one of the, the primary goals for Akali as a champion was like make an assassin that is functional into counterplay. And that sounds kind of messed up, but like look at the assassin metagame in professional play before Akali. It's non-existent, right? Like any any assassin at that time was basically a joke. You would just put a like a, a Janus shield or Janus a bad a Lulu shield onto the carry as soon as they engage, and then they would just die. Um, and so Akali had specific tools that were 
designed to give her the ability to function even when people were trying to peel her to an extent. And um, it's hard to define those tools. We didn't know exactly what they were. And so we tried an experiment with, okay, you can't be seen by towers. And that would give a lot of assassin players the agency to tower dive. That was probably a bridge too far. So we pulled back. But the initial intention of of developing that tool, that's not something we could add after release. That took so much time and thought and and like, you know, mechanics design to even implement as a first order solution. Um, and then kind of less... Less that sounds as a cop-out. Like what I'm saying is we don't always know how this will behave and it's hard to predict. And I'm sure people will be like, but that's your job. So I'm a I love watching Whippo, I love watching him play Aatrox, but I do recall when Aatrox was reworked, he very like vocally was like, This champion is non-functional and will never be good. Or something, I don't remember the exact words. And I believe this was the stance even after Aatrox was hotfix buffed. I think the vast majority of the community was like, this this will never work. You'll never hit any player trying to pay attention to the game with like Aatrox's Q. And this was the community consensus right up into the point where the shy flash Q3'd his way into like, I don't know if it was an MSI championship. I know we were talking about it earlier. I forget which one it was. Worlds but, G2, um, yeah. Yeah, into, into G2. And so not like we're, like we're wrong about the power level, but so are the best players in the world sometimes too like it's a difficult thing to land perfectly on release mm, so it's a case of add more and remove them later on in a sense when it's just overtuned yes that it well that is the only work order that is possible i suppose yeah so i mean i just to, to, to be fair we do the opposite right but it's it's like it's a different process we we made jin zhao not like non-functional recently right he used to be kind of a joke of a champion and then we made it so he actually could uh, gap close to enemies that are paying attention. So we we added me we can add mechanics if we feel like a champion needs it. But it's mm -hmm. generally a lot more time consuming and difficult to do. So when in doubt, you know, is it is it a matter of like when in doubt, if you feel if you feel like this is gonna work, if you feel like it makes sense, always easier to put it in up front than to just add it in to add it in later or would rather have maybe is it is it a matter of would you rather just have a more powerful kit than too weak of a kit in general when it comes to design? I I think we're always trying to aim for something balanced. That's like mm. the best thing I, I could give you. Like it, we are making the best possible prediction in the, into the tea leaves <laughs> of like how this will be optimized in a in a meta game of players attempting to win, and we will attempt to read. Okay, this is probably necessary for that champion to function. I mean, the, even the question itself is kind of like, it's giving part of the answer. He's like, everyone thought Camille would be broken when we removed her W healing on minions. It turns out she didn't need it at all, right? But at the time, everyone thought it was an appropriate tool that was necessary. Mm, yeah, I think it's it's interesting to see how quickly um, perspectives change on champions. I know I have been in that camp. I'm, as someone who is not a pro player, easily... Uh, upset or convinced that something is overpowered uh, less so in recent years as i've just been we've been playing league for 10 years now cadrol so i'm just like eh, maybe it is maybe it's not we'll find out in a month yeah um but i i can understand that for sure um our next question if we can jump up from another member of the rogue team with one of the analysts over at rogue um another kind of on the subject of, of champion balance specifically hello it's nico the head of analytics at rogue and my question is how do you decide to nerf a champion or to make him a flex pick, for example, the Kiana in jungle or solo lane pike 
decided to nerf it but some other champions like Sundra bot lane uh, they became flex picks so what is the decision making process there yeah i think uh yeah. good question from nico yeah thank you nico um our biggest question here is does flexing a pick almost entirely remove the weaknesses in counterplay and if it does we tend to go after that pretty aggressively so i think the best example that i can recall or at least the clearest example was Silas jungle. Um, it was like, okay, Silas goes in the jungle, doesn't get punished in lane, and then just goes to every lane on the map and steals their ult and kills them, and then just goes to the next one with no downtime, because the mechanic for his ult was basically, there's an internal cooldown for enemy champion. So Silas' ult still just had like infinite uptime by playing him in the jungle. And there's no obvious way to balance that to make it fair. It felt fairly overwrought, so we just said, okay, we probably can't let you jungle. You've eliminated all counterplay and weaknesses on the champion when that's true um and there are i mean those that's the type of example we would we would use we would say okay does, does it just void what your options are strategically against the champion then it shouldn't be too easily flexed and then i think like a good counter example is uh i feel like jace has been a flex pick for his entire existence right you can take him top you can top, take him mid he has the same general strength and weakness set he's a good lane bully but he often can die to ganks and he doesn't doesn't scale as well as other champions. So whether he's mid or top, it doesn't really change that. Mm. So if there's a balance, depending on where the roles are, that's absolutely fine. But if one's slightly more retuned or less fair in a sense for the players around the map, then that's something you'd want to hit. I think it's more about tuning than fairness. Or sorry, I said that backwards. I think it's more about fairness than tuning. Um, or, or here's another example, actually. Uh, Nocturne. We just did this like two patches ago. Nocturne is pretty non-interactive as a laner. He is resourcelessly pushing the wave and resourcelessly sustaining on it. There's not actually an option against Nocturne for the most part, unless you send like literally two or three people at him. Wow. And 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 like he doesn't seem to have that problem in the jungle, right? It's not like him having resourceless sustain is somehow unique to a jungler. And so that's like a very specific, you know, game health issue that that we were like, okay, we, you can't really flex that way. Mm, so, so it's similar to Lee Sin as well, in a sense, then as well, when it became to like lane Lee Sin. Yeah, yeah. Lane Lee Sin similarly feels like uh, when played well is like non-interactive uh, or can be at least, I should say, is he's just pushing his W and one-shotting the wave and then he's roaming the side lanes the whole game. And it's like, okay, we, we don't really... Uh, yeah, I, I, we didn't think that there was an easy way to make that uh, fair to play against. Yeah. I just like that, um, for context, even if you don't know, Vedius, one of the members of our team, um, was for many years a Nocturne mid one trick, and we now have it on record that Nocturne was a non-interactive laning champion, and there was nothing you could do about it. So uh, I'm really just happy to bring that piece of information to him and kind of just share and get <laughs> his thoughts on how he feels about... And I, I'm, not, I'm just going to paraphrase here, and again, this is my words, not Jeevan's, being a non-skilled champion. Um <laughs> that's not what you said I'm just i'm not trying to say that's what you said that's just that, that's what i took from it and if people can argue about my interpretation um but i'm excited to share that with vetty when this uh, episode finally does air you you can certainly take what i said about him being non-interactive to him i i will i will be willing to <laughs> i don't know if i say unskilled because I'd be indicting myself. It's fine, I like I'll say it's, it's unskilled. You, you push Q, you stand in the wave, you auto-attack them and the wave, and you win the lane. There's nothing more to it. And then you go bot and press ult. And then you go bot and press ult. Yeah. 
but if you're Vettius, you do it skillfully. But not a major one. <laughs> <laughs> I love you, Nocturne players. Just want to give Vettius a hard time. Um, all right, let's let's go for our next question. This one is from Zanzara, one of our another energetic questionnaire. Um, I'm excited to see what he has to say. Hi, my name is Zanzara, and I'm Dragon for Australis, and I have a question. Uh, when Udir was broken, uh, Riot was nerfing items, but with item nerf, uh, Skarn got hit too. So my question is, uh, why uh, Riot is nerfing item over the champions? So for context here, Jeevan, um, Zanzara, originally an LCL player, has joined us in the LEC, um, and he is a big Skarner enthusiast. He is known as, uh, he's the master of taxes because he nice. would Skarner one trick, I think, if he could, if it was acceptable. Uh, and it was he won a lot of games because people didn't want to buy QSS. So he was personally hurt by your balance changes, Jeevan. It's entirely you two. We're going to just put that on you. Um, so, yeah, why? Why the holistic question, though, why? When do you decide it's a champion nerf and when do you decide it's an item nerf that makes sense? Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry I did you dirty, Zanzara. Although he actually mentioned literally last night on Twitter, he's like, you knew buffs. All right, I'm winning worlds. So maybe I, maybe I paid him back in this last patch. But um, uh, <laughs> but yeah, so the, the Udyr Skarner thing is interesting. Um, we, we looked at every champion that bought Chemtech when we, uh, when we um, nerfed it. And every single champion, or close to every single champion that bought it, was just very much overperforming on that item, not just Udyr. So like... Skarner won something like four or five percent more games if he went that item over, say, Frostfire Gauntlet at that time. And so um, the item felt like an outlier just put right next to its two comparables of the other two Immolate tank items. And uh, the fact that Udyr was the most obvious standard bearer for it might make it seem like we didn't have to nerf the item. We could have just nerfed Udyr, but it had this level of overperformance across the board. So we tried to nerf the item in a way that felt like it reigned in the best case users a little more than other ones, because that, that that's why we went after movement speed specifically. Th this was like th this set of champion, right? Like Udyr, Hecarim, Skarner are essentially gated by movement speed and very little else. And so just the presence of that active became the dominant force in the gameplay behind interacting with those champions. That felt like it was messed up. Um, because the, the fact as the fact was, well, at least according to our data, Skarner was pretty OP with that item too in that patch. Uh, he was just less so than Udyr. So we were actually okay with him getting nerfed as a consequence of changing the item because his win rate was actually pretty pretty healthy even even without, you know, with that nerf, I should say. Yeah, I think even if I recall correctly, Skarner's win rate was pretty high. It yeah, was, and I think for context, you referenced four or five percent, and I think for people who aren't familiar with win rate changes, that's that's pretty massive, right? Like on the scale of win right. rate changes. Yeah. I, okay. So I didn't look at the specific numbers, so forgive me if this is partially inaccurate, but I, I believe Skarner was winning like fifty-four percent of his games when he had Chemtech, and he was winning like fifty percent of his games with Frostfire or something like that. Yeah. Um, Actually, I think it was higher than that. I think it was like 56, 52. Because I just remember he was in a very overpowered band with that item. But I don't remember the exact numbers anymore. I think it's, and that is a big deal, yeah. Yeah, I think it's a very similar thing you can relate to Strybreaker more recently as well, where it's like the item makes the champions really strong or stronger than they should be. So like the Udyr, you know, the Hecarim running at you with chem tank and still one-shotting you even though he's a full tank, just slightly unhealthy, right? So it uh, makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I, I think our players don't... 
I guess I would say that for most people who play League of Legends, the sort of primary vehicle of content is champions. And it shows it's like you can you can ban a champion, right? Um, you can't ban an item. And so if an item or a system component is like the meta driver, I think people tend to find that distasteful because they don't, I don't, I mean, you could, you guys can tell me if you feel differently, but like, if you're losing to like Duskblade, I think you'll be like, well, this is, this is not the game I signed up for. Right. Whereas if you're, mm -hmm. if you're losing to, you know, Rise, it's like, okay, well, at least I understand what Rise does and how he outplayed me or I can outplay him. Yeah. It's interesting. It's, you know, I've been around for a lot of eras of OP League of Legends. We were having this conversation. We were talking about Kha'Zix specifically and the interesting balance that has been Kha'Zix over the years. But we were talking about League of Cleavers, I think, the other day, where Black Cleaver yeah. was just yeah. the most... And that's probably one of the most egregious right examples of any kind yeah. of item issue, where it was next to Sunfire Cape, when that used to stack for... Really, shout out to the old ones um, who were watching <laughs> this. Um, those are like the two that I can think of that were just like... So, so disgustingly game warping that you could literally not build any other item in the game League of Legends. If you played a champion that couldn't build those items, you were, you were just, you were going to lose no matter what. Yeah. 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 I remember Cleaver Q. It was like buy Cleaver on Leona and you win. Of course. Yeah. Stack five black cleavers. No passive sharing. Yeah. Yep. Love yeah. It. Yeah. That was an interesting, I think that was over the break too i think that was like over the december january period where it was like a four-week patch so it's just four weeks of cleavers every game it's like a few years ago i think mm. well there's there might have been two years of cleavers because i'm thinking back to season three so we're there's yeah cleavers, cleavers <laughs> been dominant slide type, yeah yeah uh, yeah oh oh black cleaver um interesting <laughs> i this next question and i'm excited because we have two questions that are, are kind of tied together again but i would love to get we have one more from zanzara very simple, very to the point, but I think we have to hear him deliver it because I think it's just so iconically Zanzara. Hi, my name is Zanzara and I'm jungler for Astralis. And my question is, why Udyr can slap and uh, Akshan can resurrect? Why? <laughs> uh, a simple yet also <laughs> very complex question, Jeevan. Do you, should we like, yeah. I think you can, you can distill it for yourself. I think why, why one champion can slap another champion can resurrect yeah i'll start and then you can you know steer me if you want um i think the easiest way to approach it is that league is an evolving game it always has to move forward we're not okay with the game feeling stagnant that's that's kind of what we promise you when you when you install this client and to be frank uh, to be frank we've done all the simple stuff that we can do there's only so many more spells that it's like missile that flies and ccs you right um and so they have to get a little more complex if we want to keep moving the, the game forward. And honestly, players seem pretty sharply opposed to us creating similar feeling champions. Uh, I, we get that copy your homework meme flooding us when we, we do something that people feel like they can see or understand pretty well. And so um, I guess you'd have, you have to keep in mind that a lot of new champions move the game forward in vital ways that seem scary. And I think my favorite example is like we, we look at Yasuo on champ design a lot. Um, the melee carry class didn't exist as a skill fantasy before Yasuo. It was Master Yi, Jax, Trindamir, Jin Zhao, run at you and right click you to death. And players wanted more. Like they they told us all the time, they're like, where are my my like uh you know high skill fantasy melee cleaver berserker type characters? And and he did that by breaking the game by adding wind wall and saying, I can interact with a certain amount of time without the marksman two-shotting me. 
People thought this was this was messed up at the time. I think it's it's really added a good dimension to the game, and it's like kind of broadened the way to make cool melee champions popping off and looking sweet doing it, right? Like the actual viewing experience of Akali fighting Yone fighting Viego now is awesome. It's like an anime battle, right? Um, and funnily, so funnily enough, I had a Twitter exchange very recently where someone was talking about how we're designing Akshan, and he's like, "So," and I'm not I'm not making this up. Uh, he said, "So you're saying." Based on on this sort of strength weakness paradigm, we can make a champion that can instantly kill five people, but it's okay because he has no CC. I'm scared for the future of League. And I'm like, okay, well, what about the passive League? Because you're describing Karthus, right? Yeah. If we made Karthus R now, can you imagine the response? People would be like, wow, Riot just making a literal pentakill from base button. <laughs> Arthur is eleven years old. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's a good. That's a really good argument. I will give you that. That's I a would, fair argument. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I wish I could say that I wouldn't be one of those people. I'd be like, wow, I'm really uh, guys. This champ. This champ is going to be a pro play problem. Doesn't matter what his numbers are. Just mm. global right. assist machine. Interestingly, I mean, though, I, I don't I, care about Sorak all. I don't think I would care about Sorak. global heal. Kind of annoying. Yeah. Weird. But global damage yeah. infuriating. Maybe a bit yeah. bad. Yeah. Yeah. It's like. It's deeper than that. I think Karthus is cool. It's, it's like low counterplay global damage too. It's like, <laughs> if you don't have Zanyas, this hits you. Sorry, right? Uh, the moral of the I, episode can, is Zanyas. Zanyas. Everyone needs Zanyas. That's yeah, what we're Zanyas trying to tell you. <laughs> we, could, we could talk about Akshan if we wanted. I mean, I think that's a little messier topic because it's not clear if he's strong or weak yet. Um, but I'll, I'll say that like, the contrast with Udir and Akshan is interesting. Like, I thought people memed when Akshan, uh, not Akshan, uh, Udir was like, Flash Bear Slap completed my gameplay loop, <laughs> right? Like, I, I always thought people found that somewhat uninspiring when it was pro-dominance. So, I, you know, I, I guess I, I, what do you guys think about it? It was really great for, like, the three or four times we people got to shout, run, stun, job, done. Um, but then five yeah, months right. later, it was yeah, like... Yeah, it was like, it wasn't five, it was uh, five months, man. Okay, but it yeah. was like, it was like a week later, we were like, okay, he's going to do nothing for the entire game, and then he's going to run at them. And if they can't also go fast with their Shirelias on their support and their chem tank on their jungler... It's just every fight is just going to be him or Tank Hecarim, which was, to be fair, people remember Base Udyr damage. more clearly, but Tank Hecarim was yeah. infinitely more egregious in my eyes. Mike, that was, ugh, ugh. Yeah. Base yeah. damage. And then, so just with the question itself, um, Udyr's basic kit is very, very simple, right? I think that it would take, you know, it would be very easy to just learn Udyr's spells, basically. I could tell you them in a sentence each, whereas action would be a lot more complicated. Is this, like you said, League's Evolving, are those champions like Udir in the progression of League looking to be sort of updated and reworked to kind of match the current state of the game itself? Or is that something that, you know, flash stun, it works. What if it doesn't if it's not broke, don't fix it, right? It it works and people enjoy it. Yeah, it <clears throat> I think there is plenty of room in League for simple champions. I should go I should go a step beyond that. League needs champions to be simple because um we view, we view it from a perspective of a set of people that are really engaged with the game and who've played it for a decade and, and, and really have the mental capacity to understand everything. But this game would die if people didn't keep playing it fresh. And so it's really hard to be like, hey, you're new to League. Sorry, Master Yi has like 12 optimizations. Now you won't be able to figure out how to jungle. So, so these, these types of things are vitally important to retain. Um, it's a lot easier when they're also 
engaging and functional. Um, how about Ash? Ash, I think, is a good example. I don't think we would ever really need to change Ash because what she does is unique and interesting and powerful. She's the marksman that gets to engage from like meaningful distance. That's just a unique output. We wouldn't ever need to modernize that. She has a cool thing. Something like Udyr doesn't quite feel to me, at least, that the simplicity also has a unique payoff that you'll be like, well, this is cool. This is what Udyr does because he, he kind of runs at you. <laughs> yeah, like he, he could use more interest, I'd say. Mm. Yeah. Um, you know, like like the idea of stance dancing druid is awesome, but it's it's probably not exactly delivering that in modern league standards as much as other champions are. Yeah, and I think modern is a key modern is a key word for me, right? Because I feel like, you know, three, four, five years down the line, you have to wonder do these champions, as simple as they are and as welcoming to the game as they are for the new players, do they become just outdated to the point where, you know, the newer champions just there's no reason to pick them. Yeah. It's like or Annie's another good cornerstone example. She's simple, but she actually has a pretty good reason to be picked, which is like you're into a mobile assassin that is good at dodging skill shots. Because Annie mid right now is like actually very powerful at challenger MOR. She just stuns the Yone and he just collapses and dies. And so despite her having a simple kit, it also is a sharp kit. It's like it's got range weaknesses, so it isn't meta dominant. It's not great into uh, an Oriana, but into short range meta games, she's pretty powerful. Hmm. And so I feel like, hey, at any point in the game, you could see that Annie could have a, a powerful use case despite being very simple. It's really, it's, it is interesting because I see the, the kind of, I like having these simple, these simple champions. And I think I take for granted looking back at the Udyrs of the world, like, cause Akshan, people have memed a lot about how many lines of text there are in Akshan's kit, right? But it, like when you played the game for a long time, there's a lot there, but like when you break it down to simple pieces, it's, it's not, I don't think it's overwhelming at least. Then again, I'm one of six people who's read Aphelios's kit. So maybe I'm unique in that. Um, <laughs> But uh, I do think that it obviously it requires a, a much higher knowledge base of League of Legends just to to understand what what those words actually mean on that page as opposed to just like picking up Udyr and now you're a bear, now you're a turtle. Like you hit people and it does right. slightly different things, you know? So that's always... Yeah, I mean, I gave the advocacy for simple champions. I could give the advocacy for more complex ones, which, and you kind of already said it, Dracos, which is like, people have been playing this game for a long time and are going to master the simple stuff if we offer it to you. If we give you a champion that's like, hit these skill shots of a variety that you've seen before, I mean, people can be like, I'll figure this out in a day or two. Um, but Akshan, you know, I want you to need some time to figure out how to use him. Uh, it, he should be an engaging puzzle that you get to say, I'm excited for the next few weeks of League. This new champion is going to give me something that I have to unlock. And part of that is he has to offer a fairly like wide range of dynamic skill tests to do that. Um, I think where this can go wrong, and this is where people tend to feel, you know, like opposed to a new champion design, is that when that complexity also has much more agency or just a much broader toolkit than the previous champion, because that isn't just a puzzle for the player that is engaging. It's also now he always beats you. Yeah. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that. And so I. I if I can, I think Aphelios is a really interesting example where, and maybe this is a different example to, to the one that you're talking about, but to me, like, there are certain, if, if the burden of learning the champion is, it's cool and it's great and it's great, but ultimately if it becomes like, because you know what your champion does 
it becomes this like knowledge gap where if someone else hasn't read your kit and doesn't understand completely 100% what your champion does, they just lose to it every time. That's, I think, at least for me, and maybe this is a different example, how a lot of people felt when Aphelios first came out. And some of that was obviously added in with the ability to see both guns of what he was using and adjusted as people just frankly learned what the kit did. But he's another example of a champion that like, I think outside of blue alt, which was obviously just very strong uh, when he first came out, like an example of a champion where if you if you were just playing against a champion and you weren't the player trying to master him, it, it was very daunting because you were kind of forced into this mastery conundrum. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm sympathetic to the notion that Aphelios had a moderately large knowledge burden for the opponents. Um, and I, I mean, I think that's uh, either way. I, I go back to an earlier question, which is like sometimes we have to do something that is risky and not fully understood because if we did the safe thing, you know, the game would honestly be pretty boring. And I, I kind of doubt it would have lived this long if we only did the safe thing. So I think there's a strong reason to do something exciting and possibly somewhat unknown with Aphelios. And we, we learned something from him. We learned a lot from him, honestly. Yeah. I, I mean, I like him. I'm a fan. You're an Aphelios one trick kind of. I, it's true because no one Bar knows what he does. Oh, yeah. You swap both guns in bot lane and they're like, why do you do damage now? And it's not a lot of damage, but it's more than you did two seconds ago with green gun, red gun. <laughs> <laughs> and because I feel like despite being horrible at League of Legends, I feel like I can outsmart my opponents without actually having, uh, no offense to Aphelios, other Aphelios players, highly demanding mechanical moments um, outside of the baseline <laughs> expectation for AD carry. That said, uh, Akshan, probably someone who's good to talk about, especially with our next coach coming in from or our next question coming in from Vitality. Hi, Jovan. I'm Tash, the head coach for Team Vitality, and I would like to know, how is it seeing all those Twitter comments about Akshan? Um, yeah, so Tosh, thanks for the question. Um, I think my conclusion after seeing the Twitter comments is there are thousands of challengers that I should have consulted first before building the champion this way. And this is, um, this is, a, I, I, this is your champion, right? This is, I think you, this was, is this the last champion in the, in the portfolio for you? I mean, I don't want to say last forever. I don't know where you're going to be, but this is your most, your most recent, your final work as of now. Yeah, I mean, we we I pretty much finished like designing the the, the core kit at the end of last year, and then I uh, handed it um, to the champion team, and then they they polished them up, and and you know, I had I had a, a partner on the team, uh, Twin Enso, who was just awesome, and and made sure that he kept the champion in a good tuning state and fixed all the bugs. But yeah, that was kind of like my last one that I worked on. Um, yeah, it, it's it's fun. I mean, I we could talk about a lot of stuff on Akshan. I think. It's interesting. I feel like um, he fits into the what I was talking about earlier, which is it, I don't think everyone understands him yet. And I think people uh, are defensive of League if they're engaged. They don't want something that has the chance to heavily destabilize it or break it. And so the Twitter response is kind of, uh, you know, both a symptom of them caring about the game and feeling defensive of it and saying, like, how, how can you break this game in this way? It doesn't feel right to me. And I understand that perspective. Um, I I would say, kind of what we talked about earlier with say Akali or Yasuo, we uh, we don't want to make the same champion. We want to move the game forward. We want to find ways we can innovate and make things interesting. And we want to excite players. We want to make you see something and be like, wow, he's like spinning around the wall like that. That's cool. That's what we're looking for. We're looking for people to love the game they're playing. That's the core goal with him, really. I think from our perspective, having not played him, 
or against him actually at this point which is interesting i will say i played uh, i think i played around 30 games in challenger so far in the last two days and it's permabend permabend it's <laughs> it no one wants to even see it not that it not that it might be op i just think people just don't want to see it on the rift you know yeah that, that happens for the new champion every single first week their their ban rate is gigantic regardless mm -hmm. I think that the question that I would love to know is specifically on the revive mechanic, because whatever else is going on in the kit, and again, I'll learn him when he comes into pro. I try to I try to hold off until he's in pro. But the revive mechanic, yeah. um, you know, uh, being able to kill opponents who have recently killed your allies, getting that takedown, getting those revives, that that to me as a mechanic feels like it could have pretty big implications on pro. Can you talk to us as someone who worked on this kit, as someone who worked on this champion, like mm -hmm. the thought process there and like, why was that one of the avenues of exploration for for a champion? And, and just before you answer that, can I just follow up and as a minor side question? Um, why is it on his W instead of his ultimate as well? That's just something I was just curious mm -hmm. of. Yeah. Um, let me answer Dracos's question first. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of goals when it comes to making new champions. And I think people don't always necessarily have insight into those goals. And that's totally okay. Um, we wanted to make a mid lane marksman assassin because we felt like players had a desire for that marksman style. And then, you know, to some extent, Lucian and Tristana appearing there felt like to a lot of people, not, not like champions designed for the role. And so when I sat down to think about how to make this type of character, the first thing I thought was, I hate having marksmen in mid and top lane. Because either they get like a kill at level two and they snowball the game and they don't have any utility while doing it. So they just kind of like pop off and we just watch them pop off and hope they win. Or more likely my top lane vein like runs it down and goes 0-7. Because these champions don't have fallback. And they don't have anything to offer to their team. So it was important for me to find a way in which this character could express themselves in a way that was positive for their teammates. And I think this is a this is a conversation point for design a lot is, you know, do you design stuff that is fun to play as in addition to fun to play against, which I think are both important. But I think this is a team game and there's so much like there's so much toxicity in like solo queue games and so many poor team based interactions. And so to me, it, it was honest to design positive team play interactions. So that's like one reason why Akshan can do something very powerful for his allies. Um, and then to answer the pro play question, the reason why he does it specifically this way is he, he, he takes an assassin output, which is killing a priority target, and he turns it into team utility. That specific mechanic is very hard to access when players are organized and defending. Uh, any team-based, any kill or snowball-based assassin has a lot of healthy counterplay when one team is devoting resources to preventing them from doing that. And so he, I think a lot of people fundamentally misunderstand the nature of Akshan's revive. It's not zillion off. He doesn't deny a kill. That person's dead. They gave the enemy team 300 gold in half a level. Um, he isn't stopping the enemy team from snowballing. He's putting his team back in the game so that they can keep fighting. And notably, the way he tends to do this is he'll often revive a weak person on his team by trying to kill what is demonstrated to be a dangerous opponent. The, 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 the signature marker of how he can revive someone is this person just killed someone. It's not like um, it's not like finding a Nami 
fording the river in one shot, right? It's like kill the Viego that just killed three people. And if you can do that, um, then maybe your allies can join you soon, but it doesn't reverse it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that, like, and, and sorry, and, and, and finally, like, he, he doesn't have perfect tools for choosing the person to die. I mean, you might notice it in the actual kit construction, but he doesn't, he doesn't, he isn't like a Talon where he can one for one reliably. You know, like if, if Talon had this passive and it was like on a, you know, it was kill the jinx uh, and you'll revive your team, he would just jump into the middle of the team and R and one shot her and then die. Akshan can't do that. He doesn't have the ability to force kills, even though his core pattern is he needs to kill someone specific. So to me, that's how it was balanced for pro play. It's like, it's a powerful output that has powerful counterplay. To answer why it's on his W passive instead of his R passive, is that like a is that the notion that it should be gated in a, in a powerful way? Because to me, it is right. It's like he has to be on the part of the map where someone just died, and then kill that person despite everyone on the team having a marker on his head saying this guy is the target of Akshan. Like my my analogy is you know Rengar's R puts mm-hmm. a little. Uh, Mm-hmm. particle over your head and says hey he's closest to this guy that's what Akshan's passive is it's saying he's going to be here soon um and he has a 750 camel radius so you will see him before he comes as well prepare prepare your plan to stop him cool i mean i think it's interesting and it's so do you feel because we talked you talked earlier about how one of the the difficult parts of balance was you guys are always you're looking at it like a D&D character. you got a certain amount of points to put in certain places. Some of the problem in the past has been that there's numbers that are very impactful that aren't as visible, and that can obviously that can affect perception. But here in this case, what in this D&D character that is Akshan, do you feel yeah. like the price he pays for this revive mechanic is the fact that he doesn't have Talon-like backline access, or how does he actually pay in his kit? What does he give up in this kit, in theory, to, to have access to this, this crazy team utility? Yeah, that's a meaningful part of it is that he doesn't have the ability to force a kill on a priority target. And like most of his burst damage is very counterplayable by allies being near you or like blocking it. Like his ult is blockable by anything, right? It's blockable by minions, champions, monsters, turrets. Um, His E E will um, stop doing damage if someone steps into it. So if you have a Leona standing in front of the, the Jin, she'll just block him and then he won't be able to kill that character. So he has to use his stealth tools uh, well to do this. And then the other thing that he he gives up is he doesn't have the scaling DPS of an average marksman because his attack speed scaling is way lower. Um, he has decent burst damage and he can kill squishies, but he's almost never going to kill tanks effectively. And like, you know, it's uh, these things are very powerful weaknesses, let's say, because he, he doesn't win a lot of his games at this moment. I mean, I know people are learning him but uh, his his first day one win rate was like thirty percent or something like that. I forgot the number, but yeah, that's that's and that is that like the low? What is the I lowest? We had something really low as well. Yeah, what, what's like think? the lowest? Because again, I think yeah. a lot of these numbers because I've heard them before and I've had some of these discussions before. A lot of these numbers obviously stand out to me, but I want to make sure that people who aren't as familiar with design team like thirty hat is like the pits of hell, right? Like thirty is like the uh, beyond yeah. abysmal, right? Yeah, these are like historical lows. I think like release Syndra, Yasuo, Yumi had had these win rates. They're 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 quite low. Crazy, yeah. crazy to part, think how far those champions have come. Part of it is like Akshan has to play completely differently than every other character in the game. Um, he's he's playing a marksman that misses some fundamental marksman tools, 
and he's playing an assassin then. This is some fun, fundamental assassin tools, and they the tools that they have kind of create combinatorics that are powerful and, and different. Mm. Um, and but that that's just a new win condition, um, and he he'll need time to be optimized. I think he might be weak, to be honest. Like I, we're still trying to figure out how powerful he is, and my current leaning is he's probably on the weak side but we'll, we'll get more data we'll find out maybe he's available for worlds maybe not well we will we can give you a first-hand report <laughs> we, like can, a weather report we can keep you posted we can call you in on the analyst desk jeevan is he too strong yet like yeah all right yeah. that was a pen to kill he's too strong now you know we can you, get you... You, yeah can you do that if that happens <laughs> sure. I, I'll, I'll definitely i'll definitely uh jump it on there. i have no I mean, authority to do that but i will try <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, the producers will make it happen somehow. They got magic. Um, I think a lot of the pro analysts that have looked at him, they're like, he's probably not good in a professional game, right? Yeah. I mean, that was that was my understanding at least. Well, I'm excited. I I like the grappling hook ability. So I I kind of hope he sees play. I like that the alt is blockable. Again, these are things as a play by play commentator that are cool. That kind of interaction with abilities always gets me hyped. Uh, not a not you know. Not offended by a flash five-man Malphite all, just not as interesting as an Oriana ball or something else that <laughs> takes maybe a little bit more uh, to make it work. But I do want to go. We have one more question here, um, again, from Mac, the coach of Mad Lions, one that I think will kind of wrap, hopefully wrap us up nicely here in this discussion on the Game of Balance. Hello, I'm Mac, head coach of Mad Lions, uh, and I'd like to ask about what the balance team's approach is going to be as the game gets larger and as more and more champions get released towards um, bringing old champions back into the fold uh, and updating champions because uh, at a certain point I imagine it's going to become incredibly complex and there are going to be a lot of challenges when it comes to um, reworking old champions. Will Riot for example ever stop making new champions when they hit I don't know 250 champions or something like that Um, and how does that work with the game getting more complex in terms of the number of unique interactions that there are between different champions um, because this is something we commonly see with new champions like uh, Viego or Silas when he was introduced that have really unique abilities um, that they tend to cause a lot of bugs and problems in the game because uh, the game is like 11 years old right um, so how how is the balance team going to tackle that or the yeah champion design team as well I suppose yeah, I mean, I think a, a pretty big overall philosophical question there. That's what we touched on a little bit earlier with like champions being, you know, yeah. slightly behind. True. But then I think the the component there that I think we didn't talk about earlier was just like the almost, the, it's the theoretical almost, the theoretically almost overwhelming number of interactions that could be in League of Legends, let's say 10 years from now, if League is still around 10 years from now. But uh, with that many champions in the game, like how do you how do you feel about that from a design standpoint? Like, what are the considerations when you think about league in that state? It's difficult. I a lot of this would be I don't want to speak for other teams. This is more of a champion team question, and, and they have a lot of thoughts that I don't want to poorly represent. So at least I, I should be clear that I'm more representing my personal take more than the actual mm-hmm. sort of how champions will make champions here. Um, I think at a baseline. We always want to make new champions that feel... This is why we care about uniqueness. It's like if, if we can guarantee that every new champion has a unique niche, then by champion 250, we still haven't exactly stepped on an old champion's reason to exist. And, um, you know, maybe at a certain point, some of these old champions start to feel like they're in need of modernization and we rework them. But I think at a core goal, the roster is supposed to say any champion has a reason to be played and is exciting. 
and isn't just like a worse version of another one, which might get unwieldy after 250 or more. And I'm not not exactly sure the 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 tactics for what we would do at a 250 champion pool because that we're at like 160 now and it's 150. It's a little more manageable. Um, that being said, there are systems and conversations around champions that probably need to evolve as well. And like the most obvious one to me is probably draft, right? We, we, we changed draft once, uh, majorly tournament draft was like five, six years ago where we started doing the, uh, double double band 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 phase. And that, um, that was vital for not just, uh, dealing with an expanded champion pool and having five bands, but also kind of made the strategy of picking them fairly interesting by comparison. It's possible that needs more iteration. It's possible we need to to think about how we approach the game at uh, not just an in-game level, but that that sort of uh, draft phase. Um, yeah, but the, I mean, I don't know. The space is pretty open. There could be some some interesting new solutions that I haven't even like gotten near thinking of. Uh, I'm sure we'll have people come up with cool ideas. All right. I mean, I'm ready for a draft change. I say that as someone who has third nine, band face. Third band face. <laughs> five bands all for the fifth pick. Just five more bands all loaded on for last pick. Only for red side. And Just then they nerf, lose anyway. nerf red side into the ground. <laughs> I mean, if there was something that I think would move the, the, the game forward, it would be like find ways for more champions to be picked. You know, mm. find a situation where it isn't a troll pick to pick a Lowey. I mean, if we can get to that state, I think the game would feel very vibrant, even if we added another 100. Yeah. Sorry, for some reason, I thought you were going to say 150. So I was waiting for you to say 150. Oh, oh sorry, 100 more champions. Yeah, no, no, no. Yeah, yeah no, I, I have no idea why. I was waiting for us to get to 310. I guess that's the number that I'm really, really waiting for. That's that's the one that does it for me. Uh, is there? I, I don't know what the right number is, yeah. Is there anything, before we let you go, Jeevan, again, thank you so much for taking the time and answering the questions of, of all of our pros. Thanks to the pros and teams that submitted questions. But is there anything that you can share or want to share? Or could is there anything spicy? Is there anything you want to put out there? Mm-hmm. Like, um, this is, you, you have a podium. Do with it what you will. <laughs> what have you got for oh, us? Right. No pressure. <laughs> There's going to be so many people who could get mad at me if I say this the wrong way. Um, okay, wait. I, I'm interested from our perspective. Uh-huh. There are a wide range of champion picks that are interesting and are powerful and likely to meaningfully improve a team's chances of winning if they were willing to devote practice time to it. Um, but But teams are fairly unwilling to take risks at this moment is my perception. Like the example okay. I talk about a lot internally, I want to see why people don't pick Fiora into Glenn. <laughs> I like have this one example over and over. I'm like that matchup is so rough for Gwen and people are blind picking Gwen every game. Mm. Um, and at some point, and like at some point you could find a situation where you could know who the jungler is, mm. but they don't counter pick Fiora too deeply or counter, counter pick Gwen too deeply. They play the meta pick that was second or third in the tiers list of, of top. And like, I'm, I'm interested in, in to why that structure works that way. So just on that specific answer, I think a good baseline answer I could give you is just the way the meta functions right now. So in a pro play perspective, dragons are so important, right? So team fights around the dragons are really important. And I think a lot of pros would agree that Fiora struggles in team fights, especially she's more of a side lane sure. 1v1, 1v2 her. So uh, win lane is, I don't know how the matchup goes personally, but let's say Fiora hypothetically does win that lane and gets a CS lead. It's very hard to, yeah 
kind of pressure the map out of lane with a non-team fighting champion versus a Gwen who will be slightly behind who is also very strong in fights, right? So that's why we don't tend to see kind of counterpick split pushers as much, similar to like yeah. a Jax, for example, who only really functions into Camille. But even then, the Camille's more useful in fights. So I think it's just the way the meta functions. And I think that the tower changes on tier twos with more gold, gives more incentive to do that. Hullbreaker, of course, does as well. But because of how powerful the dragons are right now, I would presume that's the biggest reason as to why we don't see those kind of picks. But that, that's what I'm referring to, is like we have a fair amount of data internally that suggests that Hullbreaker is really strong. And we haven't even really seen experimentation with it with pros, which is like, that. that's actually maybe more my bigger question. It's mm. not Fiora specifically. It's like, this is a, a powerful item that a fair amount of solo queue players are like, this This is really, really useful for the specific side laning condition. We just haven't seen it. Yeah, I think the biggest uh, factor I can attribute to that um, could be OP. Maybe teams are screaming with it. I haven't always seen, seen screams, but I think that uh, the biggest thing is just communication, right? Solo queue communication breaks down very easily when it comes to like map play. So dealing with side laners becomes a lot more you know, harder. If one team starts Baron while also having someone pushing a side lane, you have to make a decision. Do I contest Baron? Do I deal with the side laner? Having a solo queue game where everything's so messy, it's very hard to deal with split pushers, especially if the split pusher is solo killing his lane or getting a lot of jungle attention. I think that split pushing in solo queue is quite powerful, and that's why I think a lot of top lane high low players, like Riven players and Jax players, uh, Camille players, stand out a lot, a lot more than people who play like Aatrox and Set and, you know, these top laners which might be more teamfight orientated. So I think that. It's probably just because of the massive communication, you know, solo queue, um, people get ahead and then they just snowball through side lane because they're very selfish um, and teams can't deal with it in solo queue, especially. That's the biggest argument, I would say. Maybe it's OP. We had uh, the Baus on the LEC, who is a Scion one-trick split-pushing AD only, who's a very high challenger player, who said he thinks it's secret OP as well. Um, I don't I think, think he yeah. thinks it's a secret. He tells everyone every chance he gets. Yeah, I he think says, this item's OP. This item is broken. I think yeah. it's exactly so, yeah. I think the incentives given as well might start to bring out more of those ideas. Um, but I like that discussion. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think that this is definitely. I would want. I would want coaches to weigh in here more too, because I think that they probably just. There are probably parts of the five v five from the coach mentality where they don't. They don't weigh. Maybe they. Maybe they just don't see champion strengths the same way that the balance team does. And that would be. That would be curious to me. Because I don't know, because I don't have the answers, right, definitively about what they value, what they do, and they don't value. But it wouldn't surprise me if, I don't know, both sides had something to learn from the other one. It's because it's a very, very different different thing to balance yeah, a game for everybody versus to min-max a game for one one thing, which is the pro mm -hmm. scene. And I think yeah. just kind of rounding I, I would, it. Oh, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, like, I, I would love to have that conversation. Because to be clear, we know Dragon Soul dominates the average strategic consideration. It's very hard to play a side laning style. I actually just feel like it's it's more viable than I think the pro scene perceives might be the way I would do it. But mm. I could I, I would love to hear their take on it as well. Yeah, I think it just goes in a sense full circle where it's like you know patches every two weeks. Dragon Soul still really OP and hasn't really been changed, and it's hard to find kind of exploration ways of counterpicks because, for example, from just a pro player perspective, Monday is the practice day. It's the happy day where everyone on a new patch or whatever just practicing random stuff they found in Solo Cube. But then from on there onwards maybe Tuesday as well, if they're finding something. From there onwards, it's just standard, you know, kind of meta-orientated fixing team problems rather than innovation. So um, it probably will come to play pro play one day. How do they present that thing I found in solo queue? Like, how is that? Like, like, like how do you bring that to the team? I'm interested in that process. So um, most teams have morning meetings every, every single morning in the weekday on what they're focusing on, what they want to focus on. Um, and from my experience, Monday, 11 a.m., Tuesday, 11 a.m., 
Monday especially, you come to the team and you say, look, I've been playing solo queue over the weekend and this champion is demolishing me or this item is OP. Mm -hmm. I really want to try this matchup specifically or this mid-jungle TV2 or this bot lane matchup um, to try and, you know, find a way around things. Like Ziggs is OP in bot. Maybe I want to try AP Kog'Maw because it outranges him and it outscales him or something in the lane. And then you try it for Monday and Tuesday. If the enemy team doesn't pick it, maybe you can say, hey, guys, can you play Ziggs one game? It's OP. We'll give it to you. Can we just want to try and counter it? And then, you know, you work off each other to try and gain information. I can see now um, why you may have struggled to make playoffs in your career if you spent your scrim days practicing AP cards. It was an example. <laughs> it was an example. You can't just low blow me like that. I have to. It's a per I think I think this is a bigger discussion too. And I yeah. and I wonder and I don't wanna I don't wanna get in the discussion now, but I think to to put a pin in it, maybe for a follow up, maybe for a part two at some point in the future, maybe with some other voices here too. I think that that there's a lot of things that go into specifically being an esports team that aren't just playing the game too. And that the patch cadence is obviously a big deal. The dense competitive calendar is a big deal. And it's just very different from the considerations. Job security. Job security. Job yeah. security. Yeah, yeah, certainly. If I am very good at Gwen, I am playing Gwen. Yep. Even if Fiora looks looks oh, yeah. tasty, I'm going uh, to focus yeah. on that Gwen until E got nerfed. Got great nerf, by the way. Great nerf. Thank you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> skip and slash. Very strong. Um Past that, Jeevan, again, I just said, want to say thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for answering all of these mm -hmm. questions um, and looking forward to what comes next out of your team uh, and the, kind of the teams surrounding you, the League of Legends teams, as we get closer closer to Worlds and hope that you continue to be disappointed in North America because I'm sorry, <laughs> but it's their blood that makes our region so good. <laughs> That's fair. Yeah, no, thank, thanks for having me. This was this was fun. I'd love to come back for part two. You know, I'll, I'll awesome. show you. Next time I'll have something that's not, you know, that's not 200 years, it'll be 40,000 years. Oh, 40,000 40, years. 40, years. Okay. I like it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm ready. Okay, we're committed to 40,000 years. I like it. All right. Uh, thank you again. This has been season eight, episode nine. We'll see you guys next week for more Euphoria heading into the LEC playoffs.